You're listening to the Bitcoin and Markets Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My name is Ansel Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets, episode number 25. We have a jam-packed show, just like always. I've been gone for two weeks. I think this is my longest by about a half an hour. Um, I think I've done a good job packing information into all this time. Um, and let me know if you guys have feedback on you'd like shorter shows. Um, I'm still thinking about releasing the segments as standalones. Uh, but let me know what you think about that. Uh, today I talk about, gosh, all sorts of stuff from the Winklevoss to Ethereum to Tour de Meester's appearances on Epicenter Bitcoin. Sorry, Epicenter Blockchain. Then I get into like WikiLeaks stuff. I try not to be too political and I ended up with talking about the dollar. So tons and tons of stuff. Before we get started, let's just cover some admin. Uh, I did have a week off for my vacation to Mexico. It was a big deal for us, both financially and um, for our future, because I'm thinking about moving there, moving outside the U.S. Uh, we had a great time. My girls, I think, had an outstanding educational experience with the whole thing. And I'm planning to release my next episode just on some thoughts about my trip. It'll be, it won't be a full episode. It'll just be like 25.1 or something, a few minutes long. Just me uh, talking about what we did. I don't know how popular that will be, but I, I'm going to try it out. Other podcast-related news is I'm building a new website. I'm tweaking a few things. I'm getting rid of the news and the photos. I spent a lot of time on the show notes for this show. I try to make, in, make them as good as I can for people. And uh, also my Twitter, I tweet out a bunch of photos. So it's kind of duplicating effort there in multiple places. So I'm just going to get rid of that. Um, I did make a new Twitter handle for the show, BTCMRKTS, Bitcoin and Markets. If you guys want to follow that, I'll be tweeting out links throughout the week. And then also maybe if there's different links that I'm doing on the show, then I'll tweet those out as well. Uh, you can follow both Ansel Linder and Bitcoin, Bitcoin Markets. I'm going to not, I'm not going to duplicate a bunch of tweets or anything. So, uh, this should be standalone. Enough admin, let's get into the show. Bits and pieces. All right, bits and pieces part of the show where I go through some headlines and try to do quick <laughs> quick comments about it and not get too bogged down. But the first part, which we need to talk about, it's the biggest news item in the space as far as I'm concerned and that's the SegWit drama there's three parts to the story that I kind of want to go over real quick and you know give you guys some information here now via BTC their mining pool that started back in June of this this year and they have come out and said that they're going to run Bitcoin Unlimited it wouldn't be a big deal but this pool has approximately 8 to 10% of the network and being segment needing 95% of the network to be activated. This is kind of a big deal right now. They are demanding that we hard fork or that Bitcoin hard forks. So they are holding the network hostage to get what they want. 
as soon as this happened, you know, a lot of people took to Twitter and said, hey, if you are mining on via BTC, consider switching to another one now. They're holding the network hostage. They're stopping scaling. And there's even some talk on RBTC pointing this out that um, we, we wanted scaling, guys. And now they're giving us scaling and we're blocking it. What's going on? So uh, somebody went as far on Twitter to say we don't negotiate with terrorists. And that sums up my thoughts pretty well, I think. And this, I didn't call them a terrorist. They are the ones that are, they stated, and I'm going to paraphrase, but this is pretty close, that they said um, they are holding the network hostage to get what they want, to get their demands met. And as far as I'm concerned, that's terrorist tactics. Uh, they want a hard fork. Remember, it used to be scaling, scaling, scaling. We want scaling now. We can't wait for SegWit. We want scaling now. Now they got SegWit. They got scaling. And what are they saying? No, um, hard fork, hard fork, hard fork. It's 100% political, bald face, right out in the open. It's totally political. It has nothing to do with scaling. And on some of the finer points of this, they don't know what they're doing with malleability. They say they have a malleability fix. This is via BTC and Bitcoin Unlimited, which are kind of the same thing. They, they have a group of developers that think they have all this great code ready to go. But, I mean, we've seen this with other altcoins, right? A group of developers that um, are probably not that bad. These developers are probably pretty darn good, but they are not the experts in the space on this. And are you willing to risk all of your Bitcoin holdings, um, all of the promise of the future of Bitcoin on some developers that could might as well be doing an altcoin like Lisk or something? I mean, even the best developers other than Bitcoin, Ethereum, suck compared to Bitcoin. Anyway, okay, so the, this is going to be an ongoing story, and I think it's going to take a couple months more than, I mean, maybe towards the end of the year it'll get sorted out. I think the, the network might have to grow past this blocking hash rate. And if the network is growing, I would say, an average of 5% every two weeks over the last couple months, um, it might only take a month of growth to grow out of this block via BTC is throwing out. And I mean, via BTC needs to expect DDoS attacks. And I don't, I don't support that, but that's going to happen. I mean, they're using terrorist tactics and then they don't expect to get attacked back. This is going to happen for sure. That's part one. Part two is I said that via BTC started in June of this year and automatically had a huge hash rate. Well, there's other big news that came out in June that is all about big blocks. So June was a big month for big blocks. I tweeted about this, and there's some links in the show notes that you guys can check out, but I wanted to mention these. Well, first was via BTC. They launched on June 5th. Um, next, I think, that was announced was this um, MGT Capital Management. They brought on Ver and Voorhees uh, and McAfee. I think it might be McAfee's company. I'm not quite sure on that. But they announced that they're going to be doing some Bitcoin mining with hydropower. And when Ver and Voorhees are, are involved, you know it's going to be uh, big blocks. They might even said that they're going to run unlimited. I'd had to relook at that story. but And then the, the third 
big news item that was around big block mining was Vare's announcement on um, his forum, Bitcoin.com, that they're going to have a mining pool. And of course, they were going to run Bitcoin Unlimited. So there's those three big announcements that happened in June that are all centered around big block mining, which is interesting. I think, I mean, I'm a conspiracy theorist, so I think that there could be some sort of talk in this camp, in the the political hard fork camp, that they want somehow to do this to block scaling and to do these terrorist tactics. I don't know. But that's a big thing from June. Um, those are the three big stories from June. But also in June, there was an article by Kyle Torpy. I think it's Bitcoin Magazine. And I'll put a link in the show notes to this. I'll have to find it again. But there was an anonymous investor via BTC. It started anonymously. I mean, the guy who, the guy who started, uh, the CEO is a known person, but he got an investment from a dude on a Chinese forum on a Chinese message board. He got this investor to come in and back him. Now reports out of China, Samson Mao uh, said that it's known in China. This is Bitmain, even though Bitmain was a member or signer of the agreement, the Hong Kong agreement. But Bitmain supposedly is the investor behind Via BTC. But it would be nice to know that. Because then we would know who the terrorists are out there, right? <clears throat> and who wants to harm Bitcoin? Who wants to harm Bitcoin scaling? Uh, more onto this conspiracy. If they are a pool and they have a bunch of pool members that are pointing their hashing power at this Via BTC pool, it, it's not out of the question for, like, say, JP Morgan or... Uh, some bank interest to say, yeah, I want you to spend $50,000 attacking this network and point it at this rival pool. Give them your hashing power. And so they do that. I, I, who knows? But it's, it's within the realm of possibility. That's a cheap way to attack Bitcoin at this time. So, um, anyways, part three of this is Segwit was announced. I think it's pronounced Peter Willa. He's obviously the main or one of the main Bitcoin core uh, core devs, but he had a message out, sent a message out on the mailing list, the Bitcoin dev mailing list, and I just wanted to read it. It's pretty short. Here it goes. Hello all, we're getting ready for Bitcoin Core's 0.13.1 release, the first one to include segregated witness for Bitcoin mainnet, after being extensively tested on testnet and in other software. Following the BIP 9 recommendation to set the version bits start time a month in the future and discussion on the last IRC meeting, in the last IRC meeting, I propose we set BIP 141's start time to November 15th, 2016. Note that this is just a lower bound on the time when the version bit signaling can begin. Activation on the network requires 1. This date to pass. 2. The full retarget window of 2016 blocks with 95% signaling the version bit, and three, a fallow period consisting of another 2016 blocks. There you have it. He announced it. This is what they're doing. So um, 2016 blocks takes about two weeks. So if we have two, I mean, these two things are not going to take 4,032 blocks. It's going to take much more than that, probably. So I mean, it could be a month and a half or two months, 
after November 15th that it actually gets activated, which is crazy. So that's going to be uh, at beginning of next year. And if it's being blocked by via BTC, who knows? I mean, it could go on and on, but eventually the Bitcoin network is going to grow out of this and uh, this will be activated. So anybody who says that Bitcoin is not exciting, that Bitcoin is boring, I mean, just take a look at this drama surrounding one thing. This is one version update, 13.1. And look at all this drama around it. Japan, once again, is back in the news. Uh, if you guys have been listening to the podcast for any length of time, I talk about Japan almost every week, maybe every other week. But I started talking about it way back on the second episode of the show on May 16th. I'm going to play a clip of, I talked about it there for, gosh, probably five or ten minutes. But this is the conclusion at the end, so I'm going to play that clip here. So what are we going to see going forward? Well, I mean, probably going to have some more tokenization happening. The uh, exchanges are going to get higher and higher volume. They're going to become becoming... Uh, more talked about, more in the limelight, more and more news are going to, is going to be coming out of Japan. And I really think that there is a very big possibility for Japan to be front and center in this whole Bitcoin thing. Okay, so back in May... I said that there was the volume was going to start picking up. There's going to be a lot of tokenization stuff, and and since then we've seen the Japanese yen volume overtake the USD volume. We've also seen a Bit Girls TV show start doing some tokenization things, things, and a a lot of stuff happening in Japan. And this story is just the next uh, installment of that. So Japan is set to s drop their sales tax on Bitcoin, and. Bitcoin purchases or purchases of Bitcoin. So if you're on an exchange right now and you buy Bitcoin, you're paying your 8% or whatever the sales tax is. Now, it's not going to be that. This article by Nikkei.com, so it's it's a major uh, financial website for Japan. This article states that Japan is the only G7 nation that has a sales tax on Bitcoin, which floored me. I thought I, I was so very surprised at that. So Japan is trying to get their regulation or taxes structure, whatever, in line with the rest of the G7 countries. So they're not left out to dry. The whipping boy, the perpetual whipping boy is always Japan. And during these financial crises, you you know, the, the Asian crises in 97 and then the crisis and then the 2008, 2009 financial crisis, the Japanese yen is the whipping boy. It strengthens when everybody wants to weaken their currency to stimulate their economy, which is a flawed policy. But Japan is always the, – the Japanese yen is always crushed. So I think Japan is tired of being this whipping boy. They don't want to get left behind. They want to make sure that they have the most friendly regulation, which is pretty close. I mean the only thing better they could do is say that they're not going to touch it, but they've – you know have friend they call it money they have um now they're getting rid of the sales tax they, they're very connected people very tech savvy uh, on top of everything so it's a very friendly environment for bitcoin so maybe that's what's happening i mean japan 
is in a bad spot, their policy or their declining population, increased debt, impotent monetary policy, stagnant economy. I could go on and on. There's so much wrong with Japan economically right now that they know it and they're looking for a way out. The people and the government and the businesses, they're all looking for a way out. Bitcoin is so new, they're wired country, totally ready to suck this up. So anyway, that's my Japanese update for you. Okay, October 12th, there was the Winklevoss ETF. They It was up for review by the SEC. And if the SEC, it was like a default. If they didn't say anything, then it was kind of approved for the next stage. But they came out and said they, well... They declined to make a ruling and they're going to extend the period to take um, comments from the public for another, I think, 30 or 45 days. So they're extending it again. These guys can't catch a break. But who knows? Who knows what will happen with this? Who really cares? There's going to be a lot of financial instruments to invest in Bitcoin. If not, just buy the damn Bitcoin. If you're an investor, a big investor waiting for this ETF to come out, contact me. I will help you buy your Bitcoin for a very small fee. And yeah, it's super easy. Don't You don't need to wait for this. To me, this is kind of this endless pump and dump where you buy the, the rumor and sell the news. Who knows if this Winklevoss ETF will ever get going. Uh, they also, I mean, these the Winklevoss kind of lost my support when they were backing Ethereum so much and the Dow, you know, they were big Dow. They, some of the people that got bailed out were the Winklevoss twins with the Dow Bockle stuff. So they kind of lost my support in that. And who, who the fuck knows if this cell will get, get off the ground. I don't really care. But like I said, if you're an investor, give me a call. I will help you for a very small fee. No problem. So everyone's heard of, brave browser by now i'm sure it's a new browser out it's supposed to be like an ad blocking browser and their mobile version is supposed to save you time when you you know click on a link and it loads kind of in one of those bubbles and then when it's ready you can just click on the bubble and not waste the 20 seconds or whatever it is that it loads well a lot of stuff came out when it brave was going to implement bitcoin payments everyone thought hey this is great you can put a Bitcoin address on your website or in a, in a tag, a meta tag on your website. And then the creator can get paid by these users and make the tipping very easy. Well, <laughs> it's come out now that Brave, you have to be KYC'd and AML'd to get your Bitcoin out. So Brave holds your Bitcoin as a trusted third party. And then when you're ready to withdraw, you have to make sure you you have the proper papers filled out and that you can get your Bitcoin. So I, I posted this. I was like, how, how have I never seen this before? And I tagged the CEO of Brave, who was also the creator of JavaScript way back in the day. Um, and he responded, which I was thrilled that he actually responded to that tweet. He's like, well... What else? Of course, we have to be compliant. That's the law. 
I said, yes, you're very compliant, but no one's going to use this feature because nobody wants to be KYC'd and AML'd and no one wants you to hold their Bitcoin. So I said, you're going to have a very tough time of it. And, and he was, he was awesome that we went back and forth a little bit. I was respectful of him and I thought it, it was a good exchange, but I am very disappointed that Brave has to do this. I mean, if they would have organized or uh, incorporated in a different country, they wouldn't have had to do this, but they incorporated in the United States. So of course they have to KYC and AML everybody. That's just the name of the game. And they have to hold your Bitcoin and they'll be able to be frozen and taint analysis will be able to put on it and everything. So I don't think this is going to be very popular and it'll definitely not be very long lived. I mean, we're just at the beginning of this wallet innovation period. I think there's going to be total integration between mobile and on, you know, addresses posted on your website for e-commerce, um, payment hub type stuff. There's going to be all sorts of things. And if I'm a wallet provider right now, I'm going to want, I'm looking at making this the easiest possible. How do I do these payment channels and a lightning network? Super easy for the content producer to put on their website. I want to make it, you know, copy and paste about 10 to 20 lines of code or maybe a widget, something like that, that they can pop on their website and make it super easy. Brave, no one's going to go here because this is a trusted third party. They don't have your back against the government. They're obviously compliant and they have no, they have no um, possibility of pushing back. If they were a big company, they'd be able to push back. Like maybe Apple or something. They'd be, they have more weight to push back against the government requests and subpoenas and all these stupid things. But Brave will not. No one's going to use this. End of story. So the last couple of weeks since I was on vacation and now doing this next episode, we had the Scaling Bitcoin Conference in Milan, Italy. I didn't go. Not very many people are able to go to conferences like this especially um abroad so what i thought was great was that they recorded everything and they had i'll put a link in the show notes to <clears throat> their youtube channel and you can watch everything i think every minute of a presentation is on the youtube channel which is fabulous i <laughs> i spent hours watching this stuff if you're going to watch one session, I would say watch uh, probably day one, session one. So day one in the morning, they had all the heavy hitters going that at that time and all the real big scalability things. So I, I've said in the past that I think that fungibility and anonymity, they are going to be the buzzwords over the next little while. They're going to take the place of blockchain and smart contracts. We are past peak blockchain. When you see blockchain stories out there from banks or whatever, they are late to the party. They are not on the leading edge, that's for sure. A peak blockchain is past. Private blockchains are just message passing systems. They're not, they, there is no need for a blockchain with, with a private blockchain. And then smart contracts, those are, those are history too, because We've learned that there's just on a decentralized system, there's just not enough computing power and bandwidth to make these smart contracts possible. Ethereum is experiencing that right now, and I'll probably talk about that in the altcoinville section. 
So after smart contracts and blockchain kind of get out of the way, there's going to be this fungibility and anonymity. And we kind of see that with Monero and Zcash popularity uh, happening right now. This is coming to Bitcoin. And Bitcoin has a lot of stuff too. I mean, if, if Mimblewimble was an altcoin, it would be very popular. It'd probably be the most popular, um, you know, anonymity altcoin out there if Mimblewimble was by itself as an altcoin. But they sent it to the Bitcoin mailing list, not to, they didn't create the altcoin. They just sent an anonymous dev, sent it to the Bitcoin dev mailing list. <clears throat> So anyway, let's just run down the first day here. And like I said, I'll put the link in the show notes. It's a long session, but I'm going to give you some numbers. There's a great comment in the comment section with all this information. So I'm just going to relay this. At um, minute 925, Adam Back and Matt Corallo, they talk about fungibility. At 3703, uh, join market. I guess it's a hard I'm I suck with names. This is a hard name to pronounce. But um, yeah, he talks about join market then at 103 they talk about tumblebit and that was a really good presentation I, I did a section in a previous podcast about tumblebit when that came out and that is live that's like tumbling your bitcoin for you know fungibility reasons but it's also got this anonymity built in i wouldn't build build a production thing but you know you can mess around with it it's operational it will work on bitcoin It'll be better with the malleability fixes of SegWit, but it's operational. Then they, um, at, uh, Andrew Polstra talks about Mimblewimble at 129. That was very interesting to learn about. I thought he did a great job. At 229, Meltem Demirs and Eric Lombroso, they talk about scaling the community. So they have the three pillars they call, let me pop this up. It's uh, build, scale, operate. So I think this is very important. This is the social and economic aspects of Bitcoin. Even if Bitcoin were to stop going forward in software right now, we would still have huge impacts socially and economically in the world. And this kind of talks about how do we not stagnate this? How do we grow this and scale this community in a smart way that helps everybody? But instead of me butchering what they said, let me just play you what they said. This is from the Scaling Bitcoin YouTube channel, obviously links in the show notes. Hope it's okay that I'm using this, um, open source, whatever. But okay. Yeah. I thought this was very important because, you know, this is how we're going to scale the community. I mean, we're going to get better with the code. The code will get better. And even if it doesn't right now, you know, Bitcoin is going to have dramatic effects on the world, even in its current form. So I think this is the most or one of the most important presentations of the weekend. I'm not going to play the whole thing, just uh, important snippets, but let's go. Uh, Bitcoin ecosystem, lots of different people, lots of different stakeholders. But the big point is it's really fragmented. Um, we all have different people we talk to. There are a lot of loosely coupled organizations, um, a lot of formal organizations, businesses, foundations, um, loose entities. Some are grassroots and focused on uh, specific objectives, while others are more general and supportive of the ecosystem. But what's really interesting is this conference is such an amazing opportunity for people from all across these different groups to come together um, and talk about building a shared vision, which is really cool. 
Um, so when we say build, scale, operate, what we were sort of thinking is there's really kind of three key stakeholder groups in Bitcoin. Um, on the build side, obviously, you know, core devs and contributors are a big part of this, but also CTOs and engineers that are building products on top of Bitcoin have a lot to do with the way the ecosystem gets built. Um, academia is driving a lot of the research, whether it's in ways to apply new cryptographic techniques um, or whether it's more on the economic sociology and politics of Bitcoin. Um, business people building as well, product leads. On the scale side, I think there's a lot of vision that goes into this, and our community is lucky to have a lot of people who are visionary thinkers. Um, but there's also marketing and sales and PR and communication and some of the really more traditional ways that we spread the message and share the knowledge about what it is that Bitcoin is actually doing. And then um, on the operate side, for Bitcoin to work, there's people who need to do certain things, whether it's miners who maintain the network, um, exchanges who allow people to move money around um, in and out of Bitcoin, the on and off ramps, um, companies using Bitcoin in new ways to help it scale and reach new audiences. There are a lot of different collaboration projects like this conference, foundations, and other community groups. And the key is we want all of these stakeholders to work in an organized, um, collaborative way. It's challenging, but if there are some ways we can kind of work together, it's really helpful. So um, the challenges, we just tried to high level outline what they are. Um, Bitcoin kind of has four key challenges. The first is there are inherent complexities. So the Bitcoin protocol itself has dependencies in it um, that really can't be solved elegantly. And Eric's going to talk a lot about some of the inherent complexities. There are also accidental complexities just from the way things have been built. Uh, this project you know, started as an experiment and then people started using it. And now uh, $10 billion of value are in this big network that's been built. Um, so there are real issues here in maintaining compatibility. And so Eric will also talk about some of his thoughts on what we can do here. Um, the third, it may be a little controversial, but I think there's some degree of inadequate methods and techniques. Um, the method of development is really challenging. It's hard to get experience. Meaningful contribution requires a really high level of skill. Um, and there's a lot of nuances and complexities in how we talk to each other, how we work together, how we figure out what we want to do. So what does that mean in terms of growth? Um, and then lastly, one that I feel really strongly about is uh, we're constantly recreating and reinventing when if we shared what was already built and uh, kind of picked optimal solutions, perhaps we can make more progress. So really thinking about um, how we can stop focusing on problems that have already been solved um, or building different products that implement the same services or features and start thinking about how to coordinate more so that new features and new services get built um, and we build best of class rather than just build, period. Uh, Vladimir closed it, um, and uh, I don't blame him for that because it was just getting too uh, too out of sync with the rest of the project. And, and I'm sure that a lot of people have gone through the same experience, uh, in, you know, doing different things, and it's really frustrating. Um, and it's you know it's unfortunate that this that this happens, and, and people like sometimes I think get upset, uh, not necessarily for the right reasons. I think that they're right to be upset that it's really frustrating to contribute to Bitcoin. But the fact is that um, you know the process really does have some serious bottlenecks. Uh, there aren't that many people that, that could do the code review, and uh, there's a lot of serious risks inherent in, in changing this code. So um, one thing that I've been really trying to push for, which I see is uh, thankfully gaining some traction, I think that this is something that can really help um, uh, um, fix this to a large extent, or at least uh, uh, um, reduce the, a lot of the problems, is uh, using uh, layered um, architecture. So like in the case of the internet, you have a base layer like IPv4, IPv6, which is just how you get packet, a, packet from point A to point B, and all the way up to the application layer, which actually interprets the data and shows it to the user and has some interaction or whatever. Um, and as you can see, um, Bitcoin also has a similar kind of structure that we could think of. Um, at the base layer, you have consensus, which is what everyone needs to agree to. And then as you go up further up, um, the, the, the compatibility requirements become less strict. So applications might want to be able to share certain data 
Um, but it's not absolutely critical. Um, but at the consensus layer, if two uh, nodes disagree, then basically uh, you're going to have two separate incompatible blockchains with different histories, and uh, that is something we're trying to avoid. Um, in this uh, in this vein, uh, one thing that I've been working on is BIP123, which uh, the idea behind this is to uh, make it so that BIP authors, when people uh, submit a BIP, uh, they, they uh, categorize their BIPs according to these layers, and it makes it easier to sort through them and to uh, um, be able to... Uh, to, 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 um, to, to prioritize them and to be able to see which ones are more critical for, for review, which ones might not. I mean, for, at the application level, maybe we don't even need to have any of the core developers review it. You could just build an app, and if enough people like it, great. That's the standard, I guess. But at the consensus layer, that definitely doesn't work. Uh, that requires the entire community to, to come to, to an agreement. Um, so um, in this particular BIP, um, I separated it into four different, uh, separated the BIPs into four different categories. So at the applications layer, you have stuff like, uh, you know, uh, Wallet like address formats, uh, BIP32. Uh, you have uh, you know uh, pass password encrypted uh, wallet uh, stuff. Um, you know th things that, that are necessary to be able to have compatibility between different applications, but not necessary for the entire network to function. Then at the API RPC level, um, you have uh, a set of, uh, of um, interfaces which applications can de might depend on to be able to uh, uh, to interface the Bitcoin network. But here uh, again, you don't need to have just a single standard. You can have several different APIs um, and several different uh, models for for developing this. Then at the peer services layer, this is the actual messages that, uh, that are sent from different, between the different peers. Um, here you do need to have some level of, uh, they need to be basically agree on the data format and the, the messages, but you can always add new kinds of messages, and you can always deprecate old messages, and you can transition pretty smoothly that way. And then finally, you have the consensus layer. And in the consensus layer, uh, everyone needs to agree, basically. If you have any disagreements here, uh, the, the, Bitcoin, the, the blockchain will fork, and you'll get two incompatible histories. Okay, I don't want to linger on the scaling Bitcoin conference too much, even though it is out of the last six months, this is one of the biggest things that happened. And they talked about a lot of great stuff. Of course, there's those, the big block party led by Roger Ver. He had a dinner the night before and there people are crying about, Oh, there was no, there, this censorship, there was no people talking. There's no presenters about big blocks and yada. yada. I mean, if they listened to it, they saw that it was talked about in other people's presentations. But Matt Corallo on his blog, he said, look, nobody requested to present from that group. If they would have requested, we could have found room for them, no problem. And if you watch these videos, you see there's a lot of dead space in there in between some um, presentations where they take lots of breaks. And that's fine. That could have been full of the big block. Maybe they left that open for them. I don't know. But there's this stupid meme out there where they're using this term censorship and they're boycotting. They're saying that Bitcoin Core is this evil empire and they're not letting other opinions be voiced, which is totally not true. So um, just be aware of that. Take that for what, what it's worth. This was a great thing. Check it out on YouTube. And I mean, I showed you what, like eight minutes or six minutes, but there's hours and hours of great information. Um, maybe I'll break that down more in future episodes. Anyways, okay, let's move on to Altcoinville. Altcoinville. Welcome to Altcoinville. This is where I talk about altcoins, all things altcoins, all the scams, all the uh, good, if there is any, and bad. Today we have, it's it's mainly, 
Well, it's two big, big pieces. I'm going to go over a Tour de Meester's appearance on Epicenter Bitcoin. I'm going to play a few snippets from that and then also talk about Ethereum hard fork. But before I get into those two things, I just want to quickly mention a cool website, you guys. This uh, might not have seen. It's called the ICO.info. And it's it's a parody site of all these ICOs that we see all around the place where people are doing their initial crypto offering or initial coin offering, however you want to say that acronym. Um, it's pretty funny. Take a, take a look at it. It's theico.info. All right, on to the Tour de Meester thing. He has made his rounds. He um, had a really good blog post on Medium called Why I'm Short Ethereum and Long Bitcoin. I'll put a link, obviously, to that in the show notes. And um, so he made his, his little rounds of the podcast circuit and uh, I caught him on Sovereign Tech which is one of the podcasts that I listen to pretty regularly and he did a it was a really fun episode so I recommend you guys checking checking that one out too but this one specifically was the Epicenter Bitcoin appearance and the reason why I'm putting this in the altcoinville is because Epicenter Bitcoin is in the blockchain space by their own admission, uh, they're all about altcoins, and I'll break this apart in a couple of these snippets here. Um, just, I don't want to bash necessarily on Epicenter Bitcoin, but um, I want to show you what a competent Bitcoin maximalist or um, rational thinker in the Bitcoin space what how they can respond to Epicenter Bitcoin and these guys' claims on um, blockchain, all the things. So let's let's get into this first clip and then I'll make some comments at the end. So you, you mentioned that you think that Bitcoin is a good vehicle for people to use as a as a store of values, essentially uh, as a way to save money over the long term. So people buy Bitcoin they, and it's uh, a good alternative to financial markets and um, fiat currencies that may or may not be around for a long time or uh may crash at some point. So it's a refuge value, uh, if I understand correctly what you're saying. So um, having said that, though, if, if people use Bitcoin as a store of value and people essentially just hold Bitcoin and don't spend it, um, isn't that uh, counter to this idea that in Bitcoin could be a good investment? Because if people are simply holding it and they're not spending their Bitcoins and not creating sort of economic value around that currency, uh, how, will the, how will the price go up? How, how will Bitcoin become more valuable? I think this is a fallacy that Bitcoin needs to be spent in order for uh, us to together increase the value of, of the network. Uh, if you save in Bitcoin, um, it, it, it really rewards long-term um, long improvements to the economy. Because, yes, yeah, at some point you will exchange it for maybe something that will yield dividends. You, you maybe you know, buy a house or invest in a company who will then kind of return some of the profits over time. But at least with, with Bitcoin or gold, you don't have um, this... Um, reality chasing you that it's decreasing in value all the time. Your, your value is not rotting away like with fiat money. Like back in the 19th century, most people would just save in gold. Like that was a huge part of the economy was just savings in gold. And you weren't forced to buy debt or you know, like government bonds or other bonds. You weren't forced to invest in the stock market. Uh, part of the reason why we have all these bubbles is because there is not really a, a decent um, f uh, medium to save money and for the long run without necessarily wanting to speculate. Uh, so I think there's a huge function and it increases prosperity a huge amount over time. And the more people come in, they kind of lift them into Bitcoin. They lift the boat for everyone. 
there's more value going around. There's a bigger all over market cap. Uh, there's more liquidity as a result. Um, so I see all kinds of benefits. Uh, and so like this word of like, you know, the, the derogatory word is often hoarding is like, you know, you just hold on to your coins and you sit on it. First of all, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy at all to hold, just hold some Bitcoin and not ever sell them or that is very hard. But and so but what you do by doing that is you you help build a floor under the price. So it does. it's not going to drop below a certain price because you have all these kind of, uh, you know, uh, I forget the word, but you have all these hoarders basically that kind of like support the, the ecosystem in that sense. And I don't think it's the only function we need. Absolutely, we need developers, we need entrepreneurs, but I think it's a vital part of, uh, of the Bitcoin community to have people who decide to save in Bitcoin. All right, so Tour did a great job there. I would add to that that um, the store of value aspect of money comes first. Right, you you need to have an expectation that you're going to be able to spend that money in the future. So there, no one would ever accept it as part of a transaction, as half of a transaction. No one would ever accept that unless they expected to be able to use it in the future, whether that be an hour, whether that be a month or a year, or thirty years. Right. So that the store value aspect needs to be come first. And I think that is probably the major portion of the price of Bitcoin. The transactional demand comes after the store value demand. And uh, OK, let's go on to the next clip. So how do you look at the, the community and Bitcoin today? How would you describe the state of Bitcoin well, when you look at the amount of value that is being moved on chain uh, in terms of dollars, right? The dollar denominated value that's being moved moved on the Bitcoin blockchain is the highest ever. I don't know exactly how much it is. I think it's about $50 billion a year or something. Um, so from that point of view, Bitcoin is extremely healthy. Security wise, uh, Bitcoin is extremely healthy, I think. Also, if you look at uh, the hash rate, uh, it's basically on its course to triple again compared to last year. Um, which means that the firewall around Bitcoin is just getting stronger and stronger. Um, I think it's going to be more tempting for governments to start accepting taxes in Bitcoin or accepting some form of payment in Bitcoin, which is like the love-hate relationship that governments, I think, will have with Bitcoin in the future is that, um, you know, I hate it because people can, uh, you know, they, they can get paid internationally, like all kinds of gray black market transactions can happen with this. But then the love is like, oh, well, how about I can tax people, you know? So, so I'm, I'm, I want Bitcoins as, as, a, as maybe even as a reserve asset in the long run. Um, so my main focus is always security. And I think Bitcoin by far is the most secure cryptocurrency there is. And then there's these wonderful uh, technological innovations that are happening with Lightning Network and sidechains. And um, a lot is happening on terms, in terms of fungibility too. So improving the privacy of Bitcoin. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just more positive than, than I've ever felt about Bitcoin. Cool, that's great. I, I really like your perspective because I think certainly on this podcast we've become more skeptical over time. No, I can't let that one go. More skeptical? You become more skeptical over time? Only of Bitcoin? Five years ago you might have been skeptical of all blockchains. And now you're not skeptical of any blockchain except for Bitcoins. You've increased your skepticism in the one thing that has proven to be stable and steady over time. And that's Bitcoin. Oh my gosh. So no, your, your skepticism has in total massively decreased and you've switched it over a hundred percent to Bitcoin itself. 
anyways, okay. Um, tour, you pumped me up on that. I think all those things are very good. You can see that Bitcoin is growing. Bitcoin is ready to get going. Um, we're, we're hitting the gas pedal here with, with the scaling, SegWit and Lightning, all this stuff coming out, even fungibility anonymity with things like TumbleBit. So, you know, the gas pedal is, is starting to get pushed towards the floor on Bitcoin, I feel. And that's kind of the feeling I got from what you were saying there. Um, I also wanted to ask the listeners and tour if you, if you listen to this idea, I, I came up with this thing about uh, value density of a blockchain because where, um, you, things like, you know, Monero and Ethereum, they're blockchain heavy. Right. And Ethereum's computing heavy, but uh, Monero is blockchain heavy because you have to, um, these rigs, rig signatures, they don't have UTXOs. So that there, it's a lot more memory, um, there's a lot more memory demand in that system. And Zcash, um, like you alluded to in this, this uh, podcast here is, has a lot of memory issues too because their transactions are bigger to make them more anonymous. So, um, this idea I have to, as one metric would be a value density of a blockchain where Bitcoin, you know, is gosh, I'd have to look up those numbers again, but it was something like, um, a hundred thousand dollars of value per megabyte on the blockchain. And Ethereum has $14,000 per megabyte on their blockchain. So that's, that's pretty interesting for me, at least to, to think about it that way, because anyway, I th thought it was good. Now the next couple clips, I know I'm going long on this, but this is altcoinville. So we're getting into the altcoin part of this and they start talking about startups, startups in the blockchain space and that none of them are on Bitcoin. So, uh, I'm going to play their two questions first, and then I'm going to go into tours answer. Um, I might make a few comments there in between or save it to the end. I don't know yet. Okay. But I also think a, a big thing has just been that a lot of activity when it comes to startup activity is it's not happening on Bitcoin, right? That's happening uh, with Ethereum or with permission blockchains. I think those, those are the two areas where a lot of activity is. So, yeah, I, I mean, when you talk about the startups, um, yeah, it's definitely true. Although, like, even back in 2012, 13, there were a lot of, like, um, startups who, I guess back in the back then, transaction fees were not an issue. So you could build, uh, you know, um, a gambling website and you just do it all on chain, like like um, you know, Satoshi Dice. But then over time, people kind of started seeing that, oh, there's transaction fees. So we can't just, you know, uh, put all these transactions on the network. And then it took, takes it just takes a long time to make that leap. And so people have, like... Um, segued into focusing on altcoins my contention is that uh bitcoin is more robust and it will scale better in the long run because it has these layers and doesn't try to do everything on the main chain uh and I, so i think that this startup activity is going to return to bitcoin um in part because that's where the most money is and that's where the you know the, the network effect is the strongest and because it's the most secure network if you want to help people store value or move value then i think the minimum requirement is that you offer the best security possible we, we both work in startups that uh, deal in uh, are in the blockchain space, and all of the demand today is coming from enterprise who want to implement blockchain technologies, um, and for the most part, using permission blockchains as a way to upgrade existing infrastructure that is, you know, just um, like in a dinosaur era. Uh, right. What do you feel about that? 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's great, and uh, and I think that um, it's possible that that demand is not going to weaken. I'm not saying that all the entrepreneurs that are now you know building permission blockchains are going to you know move back to to Bitcoin. What I think is that um, what if Bitcoin goes from 10 billion to 100 billion? Then all of a sudden there's 100 billion dollars worth of savings that wants services. I want to send my Bitcoin to India, and I want that money to be deposited on a bank account somewhere, or um, I want to you know. Uh, to do uh, an initial an IPO on a sidechain, like help me do that. Like there's all this money now in Bitcoin. Like help us do that. Um, and I don't think that money has to be siphoned away from from you know other blockchain projects. Uh, I think it's possible, but I, I don't really think that needs to happen at all. So I don't know if that makes sense. Like I don't necessarily think that the blockchain space would shrink a lot. Uh, although I do think there's maybe some you know some overzealousness in terms of what you know what private blockchains actually can achieve. <laughs> Okay, so this is where they get into the startup stuff, and um, I think Tour does a great job. I don't think the Epicenter Bitcoin guys are used to people pushing back against their um, blockchain mantra and their Bitcoin bashing. Uh, Tour does a great job. He remains calm. He takes their arguments back on them. Um, I think he has a really good point there uh, when he talks about there used to be a lot of new projects on Bitcoin, on the main net. And that was back when there were no transaction fees. And now that the blocks are full and there's a transaction fee, scams are a lot harder to put on there. Not only are these new startups, but scams in general are much harder to be put onto the main chain. And so you see these scams being pushed off into the altcoins, right? Into Ethereum, the DAO, Augur, uh, Factum, uh, all these all all these altcoins, Steam, all, all this stuff. You see this the, the the blocks filling up, and so these scams have to go somewhere else, and that that's why you don't find at least I can't think of any off the top of my head that were out, like mainnet Bitcoin scams. So that was a really good point. Um, then then he gets on when when Sebastian goes in to blockchain this and blockchain that and this is where all the startups are and this is where the enterprise wants to be well guess what no one really cares if enterprise is there right now because they don't have any viable products so i mean it's like yeah the demand i have a huge amount of demand for a freaking uh force field around my house like a dome that makes it perfectly 72 degrees fahrenheit you know always nice and sunny um and that uh, i don't know just makes me have good health and you know so blah 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 all this stuff i i really really there's a huge amount of demand for that shit but it's it's a fucking dream and that's what a lot of these blockchain people uh, these enterprises that are coming in and the business, the banks and stuff, they're coming in, they're looking at blockchain. They're like, Oh my God, this is going to revolutionize everything. We're going to, you know, end world hunger with this shit. But that's just a dream. So who gives a shit what the demand is? There's a difference between startups and viable startups. Viable startups aren't even like in the, the same definition class most of the time. So you have startups that don't really get funding. Maybe they go to their friends and family and raise, uh, you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars to start this website, like Paxful or local bitcoins or something like that, right? Or Darknet 
marketplace. And they actually make money. But they aren't necessarily considered a quote-unquote startup to these people. Startups are the ones that get the big banks and get the big VC money. They're throwing VC, they're throwing money at unicorns. Make me more unicorns, people. So it does not matter where the startup, uh, you know, the concentration of startups is. Because it's, it's startups versus viable startups. And right now, Bitcoin outweighs the number of viable startups, people making money using Bitcoin or using this technology, using this as a payment or whatever. The amount of people making money is, it's, it's like 100 to 1. And that 1 in the altcoins are scammers like Stefan Tool. God, it's just so fucking frustrating. And I liked how he said that the blockchain tour said the blockchain space might not decrease with time, but the Bitcoin space will increase with time. You know, you, if you have a hundred billion dollars, if it goes up 10 X from right now, you have a hundred billion dollars. You have that money wanting services. And he said it very, very eloquently there. That was great. Okay. Enough with epicenter Bitcoin. Let's break into the Ethereum hard fork. So they had all these DDoS attacks, and this is going to be pretty short. Uh, it's, it's, I've been saying this for so long now that they're just going to have to fork over and over again. And, um, anyway, so they got, they had all these DDoS attacks. That's not really news. Um, they also had, um, uh, increase in their blockchain size by 10 gigabytes in one night. It went from about roughly 50 gigabytes to roughly 60 gigabytes in one night. Currently, again, uh, Bitcoin is at like 92 gigabytes and Ethereum is at about 60 gigabytes, which is massive if you think about the age of the blockchains. Right? Bitcoin is seven years old and Ethereum is two. By the time it's two and a half, it's going to be bigger than Bitcoin's blockchain. So uh, anyway, they were getting all these DDoS attacks, um, making the nodes run these smart contracts, or at least estimating the smart contracts, something like that. So um, the time times were getting very delayed. Uh, some Even some of the exchanges went offline. They weren't trading Ethereum, or at least not letting you uh, withdraw Ethereum. Uh, that's the classic story. So anyway, then, then they decided to do a hard fork to fix this. Um, they Ethereum Classic came out and said, we will also do the hard fork. And uh, we plan to do another hard fork at this at this time or something for some other fix. And I asked him, I said, hey, Ethereum Classic, uh, are you getting rid of the difficulty bomb? Because remember, the difficulty bomb in Ethereum is um, currently running, I believe, there's a very low uh, d minimum difficulty, and it's increasing exponentially. Uh, pretty soon, I think early next year or something, or mid next year, it's going to get to the point where it's too hard to find a block. And so the the network will basically grind to a halt if it does not switch to proof of stake or hard fork 
um, to get rid of the difficulty bomb. So I asked them, are you getting rid of that? And they said, yes, we're staying on proof of work, which I think is a huge, huge plus. Um, the price went down in Ethereum Classic over the last couple days with this hard fork. But I, I, I think it's going to recover quickly because of that um, uh, proof of work. So the Ethereum hard fork side, uh, the Vitalik chain, it is, it's hard forked last night. I'm recording this on the 18th. It hard forked last night and supposedly is successful. The exchanges have started trading it again. Um, but when, when is the next fork going to be? When's the next exploit going to be? The, it's getting to the point. I, I, how many more of these are people going to, are we going to have until people start saying, I don't think it's the best place to build my app. I don't, uh, investors will say, I don't think people are going to build their apps on this. You know, how long is it going to take till that? Maybe one more, maybe one more. I don't know, but it, it, they're fighting a losing battle at this point because the, not only is the language faulty, I mean, they're trying to stuff too much stuff into a blockchain. But the whole concept is faulty. Featured article. Okay, a featured article is a time where I, I take one topic. It doesn't have to be Bitcoin specifically. It can be anything, you know, the... Since we talk about world markets and things, it can be all sorts of stuff. It can be freedom related, which it is today. And I talk about that topic a little bit more in depth. Today is a topic and it is the WikiLeaks stuff. I don't know how anybody could have escaped uh, the fact that WikiLeaks has been releasing a lot of stuff recently. And uh, I don't have any one specific article to cite, but I do have a few sources that I'm going to link in the show notes, so you guys should check that out. Okay, so um, over the last several months, WikiLeaks has been WikiLeaks has been going after Hillary Clinton like crazy. It started with emails from her private server, kind of to show evidence that she. Uh, disclosed or or uh handled classified information poorly which is the case so um but that kind of just sputtered out it didn't go anywhere she as expected she wasn't charged with anything whatsoever the investigation died no perjury investigation no nothing the corruption got so bad. I believe WikiLeaks saw this and the corruption was so bad that, um, other places around other sources around the world went after her emails and people connected to her and her emails. So they found, uh, some emails and these ones are specifically from Podesta. I'm reading off the, the WikiLeaks website here. So, um, Mr. Podesta is a long-term associate of the Clintons and was President Clinton's chief of staff from 98 to 2001. Mr. Podesta also controls the Podesta Group, a major lobbying firm, and is the chair of the Center of American Progress, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. Part 1 of the Podesta emails compromises 2,060 emails 
and 170 attachments and focuses on Mr. Podesta's community relating to nuclear energy and media handling over donations of the Clinton Foundation for mining and nuclear interests. 1,244 of the emails reference nuclear energy. The full connection includes emails to and from Hillary Clinton. So, this is a data dump of uh, incriminating evidence for Hillary Clinton. And there's some really bad stuff in here. And I don't want to... You could take this in so many different political ways. Uh, bottom line to me is is they're all corrupt. Everybody running for office. I mean, it's the sociopath class, as I've said in the past. And... Uh, and this just proves that they're corrupt. They're holding back the market. They're creating this market by the sociopaths for the sociopaths. And we would be much better off without any of them. But I don't want to take it too political here. My point is to talk about the sociology or the, um, the sociological aspects of this, this, uh, WikiLeaks stuff. This is what the internet promised to be. Remember that? It was supposed to decentralize information, give everybody access to information. The free sharing of information. And that information should be classified as controversial. Right? Because no one's going to stop information that is good. It's just like freedom of speech. No one's going to stop speech that everybody agrees with. The only people that are going to stop or the only type of speech that's going to be stopped is controversial speech. But you need to have the right to say it. And that's what the Internet promised to be was free sharing of information and information that was not popular. So WikiLeaks to me, and I've supported them since the beginning. They started back in 2006. Uh, they famously um, started accepting Bitcoin, I think, in 2011, right? Um, and so they, they, to me are what the internet promises to be, but you saw what happened to them in 2010 and, and everything, their bank accounts were frozen, their credit cards were stopped Their Uh, every, all the donations they had gotten up to that point were stolen from them. And so what did they turn to? Well, they turned to Bitcoin. And so to me, Bitcoin is this culmination of the internet. The internet is not complete. Without Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the missing piece. And it might be the most powerful piece to be added to the internet. Um, you can't separate Bitcoin from the internet. And in the future you won't be able to separate the internet from Bitcoin. It is the most powerful piece because it is money. And everything revolves around money. Bitcoin enables the internet to fulfill its potential. And we haven't... We haven't felt the whole um, impact of Bitcoin yet. I mean, it took 20 years for the internet to come from, um, you know, basically the first kind of protocols being designed into what we major consumer adoption or retail adoption or whatever. Well, with Bitcoin, it's already been around for seven years. So, you know, maybe 13 more years until it is a major there's major adoption of bitcoin in most of the internet and it doesn't have to be protocol level and it's it's not going to be protocol level it's going to be bitcoin on these layer twos right um but 
Bitcoin is necessary to fulfill the promise of the internet, in my opinion. Um, Bitcoin is the internet. And a lot of people will say that, okay, so Bitcoin is the best invention since the internet. Well, if Bitcoin is the internet, then Bitcoin is actually the best invention since the printing press. The social ramifications, the economic ramifications of Bitcoin are unfathomable at this point. The, the impact of Bitcoin is not just the impact of Bitcoin itself. The impact of Bitcoin is the impact of the internet completed. If you think of it that way, oh my God, this is going to be huge, people. Back in the day, there were internet people looking at the internet, businesses, you know, Fortune 500s. They were looking at the internet saying, oh, look, this is going to make my existing tasks and processes, uh, it's going to make them more efficient. I can do my record keeping on there. I can do intranets. Look at all that. That's great. But then the reality hit that, no, this is going to create new processes, new tasks, new specialties, new industries. It's going to disrupt everything. And the balance of power was shifted. The Fortune 500 had a big shakeup. And to, to keep their place, what did they do? The, these, these or, corporations, these multinationals dug in their heels with government to get more licensing, more subsidies, more lobbying, more favorable regulation to existing players, putting up barriers to entry. So that's what they, that's one reason why we've seen in the last 15 years, we've seen a lot of regulation. We've seen it got, get a lot worse, a lot faster because the internet came in and started to disrupt these people. So they had to dig in their heels with their buddy, the government. And that's not capitalism. I mean, people will blame capitalism for this, but when a business gets involved with government, that's not capitalism, right? Anyway, so the same, we see the same thing with block or Bitcoin. Bitcoin's coming in, disrupting these people and they see it right now. They see it. They think they can get ahead of it and they're going to call it blockchain. They're going to try to patent it and stuff, which makes me think. I just read this article about, I'll put it in the show notes. It's pretty good. Uh, R3 is having all these problems with their big consortium that they have because all these banks are turning around and patenting everything they talk about in their meetings. <laughs> oh, it's freaking hilarious. But, uh, okay, back to this. So, yeah, the Bitcoin is going to disrupt these people just like the Internet did. It's going to continue. It's enabling the Internet to reach its full potential. And it's going to continue to disrupt these people and dislodge all these people that have dug in their heels. So digging in your heels isn't going to work anymore for these large companies. They're going to be disrupted. WikiLeaks to me is, that's what the internet promised to be. Bitcoin is enabling that. Very simply, Bitcoin can enable that by, you know, giving monetary donations to people like WikiLeaks. 
But Bitcoin can enable it in so many other ways that we can't even see today. You can't ever see the changes. That's what an entrepreneur is for. Because change and increases in efficiency, like leaps or even small incremental changes in productivity or efficiency, is very hard to see. And that's the role of the entrepreneur. It's funny, today the role of the entrepreneur is who can file their patent the fastest. Look at this R3 stuff. Or, you know, I watch Shark Tank, and the one of the main questions they ask all the time is, you know, do you have a patent? Or they say, this isn't patentable. So the role of the entrepreneur these days is to come up with some patentable idea that will satisfy some... uh you know, base desire or base need or want of these people. Not like an efficiency game. But anyways. um. So yeah, Bitcoin is going to explode in creativity. All the entrepreneurs are going to be on Bitcoin. Just like in the late 90s, all the entrepreneurs start going into, you know, dot-coms. And in the dot-com bubble, you had, uh, uh that was after mainstream adoption right i mean it was myspace was around napster was around people all had emails sending emails and so the internet was mainstream at that point and then you had the big bubble think about bitcoin so bitcoin when it goes mainstream within the decade here i think by the end of 10 years from now so by 2026 bitcoin will be mainstream and by that point you know you uh then you will have the big bubble, the Bitcoin bubble. We could call it the dot bit bubble. That's going to be the next big bubble for these types of companies. It's going to disrupt people. It's going to close down businesses. It's going to do all sorts of things. Industries will be gone. Hopefully the banking industry or much of the banking industry. Flashpoint. All right, for Flashpoint, I have a couple topics here today. The first one is via Reuters, and the, the headline is ECB urges EU to curb virtual money on fear of losing control. It's pretty short, so I'm just going to read what this. I'm just going to read this whole article. The European Central Bank wants EU lawmakers to tighten proposed new rules on digital currencies such as Bitcoin, fearing they might one day weaken its own control over money supply in the eurozone. The European Commission's draft rules aimed at fighting terrorism require currency exchange platforms to increase checks on the identities of people exchanging virtual currencies for real ones and report suspicious transactions. Okay, now breaking in here, that, that's pretty awesome about BTCE, right? I think they are, they're in Eastern Europe and maybe Russia, not quite sure, but no one knows who owns it. And this is, this is why we, this is why many of us, since we got into Bitcoin years ago, that they're coming for Bitcoin. They will come for Bitcoin. They're going to, if you are a compliant exchange, you're in trouble. So I can see within the year BTCE, uh, or at least in volume, taking over things like Bitfinex and, uh, probably Bitstamp 
and Coinbase because they're all going to be compliant. The Eastern exchanges, you know, like uh, in Japan and China, they might not be under this type of thing. Who knows? There might be some sort of competition, regulate, uh, regulatory competition. Maybe China wants to promote the euro losing value or the dollar losing value. Who knows? Reading on. In a legal opinion published on Tuesday, the ECB said EU institutions should not promote the use of digital currencies and should make clear they lack the legal status of currency or money. Quote, the reliance of economic actors on virtual currency units, if substantially increased in the future, could in principle affect the central bank's control over the supply of money, although under current practice this risk is limited. Thus, EU legislative bodies should not seek in this particular context to promote the wider use of virtual currencies. Such transactions would not be covered by any of the control measures provided for in the proposal and could provide a means of financing illegal activities, end quote. This is by Francesco Canepa. Ver I mean, crazy, isn't that? They are admitting that Bitcoin is able to skirt the law and they can't do anything about it. And they're scared. And I've said in the past about these uh, economists and central bankers, they know, they understand what Bitcoin is. Remember that article I cited a, a while ago that Krugman, Paul Krugman cited, which was, um, uh, I wish Bitcoin would die in a fire because they know what Bitcoin is and they're scared of it. And when they publish stuff like this, telling people to warn their clients and customers, warn the people how Bitcoin is bad. They're not, they're not helping themselves. See, that's the thing with this stuff is that you cannot admit that it's a threat. Because if they admit that it's a threat, it gives it credence that it's a viable thing. So the only thing they can do is threaten that, oh, it's illegal. It's only used for illegal activities as if their opinion has weight anymore. But guess what? People don't care. Look at the Panama Papers. People are hiding their money offshore to avoid taxes and regulation. So those people don't care. As long as it's a viable option for them, which the ECB is saying that it is right in this article. People are going to start storing their money in Bitcoin to hide it. People are desperate and they don't care if they're doing things illegally, they care that this tool of Bitcoin enables them to hide value from the government. Um, well, okay, so these central bankers, they think that we care what they say. I remember with, um, there was Ben Bernanke, he was laughing at gold and calling it a relic. And then Ron Paul was like, why do you still hold gold? And there was no real answer that he could give. Um, but, you know, he laughed at it. And so he laughs at it. Then all of his academic stooges, they laugh at it all the way down. They just parrot this, this thing that it's a relic, right? Uh, people care what he says or what he had to say. Now, fast forward four or eight years, whatever it is, people don't care what they say anymore. They don't believe them. If they say that it's bad, people are like, well, it's probably good. Your governments don't represent the people anymore. 
and that's shown on the streets of Europe and the U.S., everywhere around the world. Your government doesn't represent you anymore, and if so, if they tell you something is good or whatever, you don't believe them. If they say it's bad, you don't believe them. You're just looking for a place to hide your value. People don't care. They're desperate. They want to hide their value in something that's not negative interest rate yielding. And shit, this article, how retarded is the ECB? They're saying this is a viable way to skirt their regulations. And that one part about um, it's not covered by any of the control measures provided for in this proposal. Well, fucking A. You just gave the green light to all these people that want to uh, not be constrained by your control measures. People don't buy it anymore. God. All right. Let's move on to the next story. Next story is this uh, on Zero Hedge. And the headline, Saudis, China, dump treasuries. Foreign central banks liquidate a record $346 billion in U.S. paper. So I'm just going to read some of the highlights here. One month ago, when we last looked at the Fed's update of treasuries held in custody, we noted something troubling. The number dropped sharply, declining over $27.5 billion in one week, the biggest weekly drop since January 2015, pushing the total amount of custodial paper to $2.83 trillion, the lowest since 2012. One month later, we refreshed uh, we refreshed this chart and find that in the latest weekly update, foreign central banks continued their relentless liquidation of U.S. paper held in the Fed's custody account, which tumbled by another $22.3 trillion in the past week, pushing the total amount of custodial paper to $2.85, sorry, $2.805 trillion, another fresh post-2012 low. If you look at this chart, treasuries held in custody at the, the Fed, it's taken a nosedive. I mean, it constantly was climbing up in 2012, passing the current place, going up even higher, up over above, uh, three trillion. It looks like about maybe 300 or sorry, 3.25 trillion, roughly at the height. And now it's down to 2.8 trillion. And remember, these are, these are margin things, right? Like if the price drops by a little bit and it hits some key support level or something, it could drop very far, very fast. And one of my favorite sayings is it happens little by little and then all at once. So this continues to go down per week, over $20 billion getting sucked out or sold off. That's huge. Next part here. Today, in addition to the Fed's custody data, we also got the latest monthly Treasury International Capital data, which showed that the uh, the troubling trend presented uh, one month ago has accelerated. Recall that a month ago, we reported that in the latest 12 months, we have observed a not-so-stealthy, in fact, quite massive, $343 billion in treasury selling by foreign central banks in the period of July 2015 to July of 2016. Something truly unprecedented in its size and scope. This is unprecedented. There hasn't been a yearly decline or rate of decline that low ever. Fast forward to today when the latest monthly update, um, that of July, so one month later, we find that uh, 
they broke the record again. It went from three point or three hundred and forty three billion per year to three hundred and forty six billion per year. So not a huge amount, but I mean it's it's diving. This chart too. It looks, you know, there's a zero line for no change, and it had been up above that for God, two thousand and two, with probably a little dip, you know, with the dot com bubble there. There was a little dip, and and then it was above zero for for treasury purchases by foreign central banks until now, or until at the end of last year, it looks like, or last year, and it's diving down to negative. $346 billion per year. Unprecedented. Um, okay, they say among the biggest sellers are China and Saudi as a percentage of their holdings, uh, Saudi. They, they only have been, this year they've sold off like 30 billion in U.S. treasuries, which is not that much when you're talking about 340 billion. So they, China has done a lot more. I mean, just, let's see. Just in the last two months, they've done 50, 50 billion in U.S. treasuries. So that's, that's pretty incredible. Um, everybody out there, I, I picked this story because everybody out there is talking about the, the DXY, right? The, the dollar index is going up. It's going to, if it breaks a hundred, it's off to the races, maybe 110, 120. Who knows? It's strengthening and everybody's still thinking that we're in this tightening cycle. This, uh, you know, rate tightening cycle. We're not. That is over. We've been at zero for eight years. We raised it 25 basis points and the market crashed in January. Worst January on record in the history of the stock market. And everybody thinks we're going to keep tightening. The tightening cycle is over. The dot, it's just a matter of time before QE starts again. And who knows? I, I, I've been harping on this meme or this narrative, uh, over the last couple shows here, last couple episodes. Um, so Janet Yellen has started this, this, uh, narrative of at the Jackson Hole speech in her footnotes, she had this formula. She, and she recommended or said they're looking at setting their rates, uh, by formula. So plugging in the numbers and getting the interest rate out. In in that episode, I talked about how, well, yeah, because look at Bitcoin. The monetary policy of Bitcoin looks serene and beautiful and easy, right? With the block reward. Every 10 minutes, you have this, and it decreases, and blah, blah, blah. It looks serene, and per it's working very well. But what does the Fed have to deal with? They have to deal with the FOMC, all these people, all their member banks or owner banks that we don't know of who owns the bank, the politicians, other central banks around the world, and they, they had to deal with all this crap, to pick the interest rate, which is fucking wrong all the time. And people hate them. <laughs> so, th yeah, this formulaic way to set an interest rate looks so attractive, I'm sure. And so she threw that out there. She said, by using this formula, it would be uh, after the financial crisis. I crunched the numbers here, guys. This Jenny Ellen talking. Uh, it would have been negative 9%. And she said a more... uh Conser a more conservative formula would have been negative 4%. Negative 4%. And that's in 2009. What would it be today? That's what everyone's wondering. So she threw this out there in, in a footnotes to her speech as building this narrative. I mean, people that pay attention to this stuff are looking at this. Uh, billion dollar 
Fund managers are looking at this. All the people on Wall Street are looking at her footnotes because there's no market. It's the Fed. So they're, that's what they're dissecting. I mean, there's bots that dissect her comments after each meeting and, and then trade on those comments because there's no market. It's the Fed. So she's building this narrative of going negative. And then uh, she had a speech the other day that I talked about in my last episode where she dropped the idea of buying stocks, the Fed buying stocks. We are done raising interest rates, people. The dollar is going to have to weaken. If it doesn't, the stock market is crashing. And the Fed will not let that happen. They're going to print. It's either print or don't print. That's the question. If they don't print, the dollar goes up and stock market goes down. They cannot let that happen. They must print. It's going to be QE and who knows. I remember back, I think it was like 2003 or so. Uh, I think it was from President Bush or when President Bush, when Bush was president. He, they had some program where they gave out $1,200 to every taxpayer. I mean, it was weighted a certain amount by your salary or something or your wage. But, um, yeah, they, they send out all these checks to people and that's, I can see that happening again. This QE buying, uh, bonds, <laughs> it hasn't worked. Helicopter money. They can't do helicopter money. I mean, that, that would be helicopter money, but they can't like call it just helicopter. We're going to add a zero to everybody's bank account or something. So they're going to have to do it some other way. I, I bet we'll get checks or something in. And I hope everybody turns that into Bitcoin. <laughs> oh, bad. Yeah, the helicopter money is coming. The tightening is done. They're, the dollar is not going to strengthen much past 100. And if it does, it's going to be very short-lived and go right, right back down. They cannot let that happen. Like I say, a lot of people I listen to and I trust their opinion. They They say the dollar is going stronger. Maybe I'm missing something here, but I don't think so. They're going to ease, and it's going to be of gigantic proportions. That's a wrap. Another episode in the books. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at the website, bitcoinandmarkets.com. Each show notes has a QR code there to donate. Also, if you'd like to contact me, you can do so at the website or on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. Or the new Twitter is at BTCMRKTS. If you if you know somebody that would you think would like the show, please share it around. Share it to your meetups. Share it uh, on Reddit or on Twitter. I would really appreciate it. I've I've gotten a little bit of feedback that people are having a hard time finding the podcast. So, anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. See you next time. Peace. Bitcoin and markets.